Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Adventures in Theater History, Philadelphia. Last time, we talked about bad behavior at Philadelphia theaters and how early 19th century theater audiences could get quite unruly on certain occasions if some among them felt sufficiently aggrieved about the quality of the performance or about political matters or somehow felt that their ethnicity or national pride had been insulted. This is a bit surprising because Philadelphia was known for being a fairly clean and orderly city as American urban spaces went in the day. We heard how Fanny Kemble, for example, when she arrived in America for the first time, felt that it was a much more pleasant town than New York. But we also know from the way that an angry crowd pursued William Wood one night from the stage door of the Chestnut Street Theater all the way to Independence Hall and beyond, that the sort of mobs that had occasionally gotten out of hand in Philadelphia theaters could also erupt out in the city streets. This tendency got worse as the city of Philadelphia continued to grow in size over the course of the first half of the 19th century. In 1838, for example, was the infamous and awful anti-abolition riot that had burned down Pennsylvania Hall while it hosted a meeting protesting against the institution of chattel slavery in America. And a few years later, there were the nativist meetings led by Protestant Philadelphians who were deeply distrustful of newly arrived immigrants, Catholics in particular. Feelings reached a fever pitch in 1844 when anti-Catholic riots broke out in the city and also in the adjoining townships to the north and south. Churches were burned, the local militia was called out, and there were open gun battles in the streets. But what does this have to do with theater history, our subject at hand? As Philadelphia's population had expanded, more theaters that catered to popular tastes for melodramas, ballad operas, pantomime spectacles, circuses, and even minstrel shows were to be found throughout the city. And even though more sedate and wealthy people were also attending these same theaters, when push came to shove, as it were, raucous behavior was often the norm. Philadelphians of a socially reforming mindset felt keenly the lack of a large formal theater in the city, something suitable for the reverent appreciation of the European artistic dramatic and musical spectacle that was known as grand opera. Bellini, Rossini, Mozart, Weber, Verdi, that sort of thing. Believe it or not, many people thought that maybe opera had the answer and could spread peace over the roiling city, giving it a calming and uplifting spirit of art. There was a widespread sentiment among the city's political leadership and its educated classes that promoting opera and the sort of large public institutions necessary to support the art form would have a civilizing effect on Philadelphians' public behavior. 
Opera would prove a means of social refinement, wrote one supporter, who envisioned that an opera house in Philadelphia would, quote, lay the foundation of such a system as would enable us hereafter to command the best musical and dramatic talent of the world and would elevate the tone of dramatic entertainments with a view to reform in the morale of our theaters. Emulating the great opera institutions of Paris, Milan, and London was the ambition of many in Philadelphia's business leadership. They felt it would bring more travelers to the city, increase educational levels and general sophistication, and raise property valuations, as well as making life in the city exciting and edifying. But they were not just looking to Europe. Competition between the large cities of the American Eastern Seaboard was already quite keen, and Philadelphia did not feel at all secure in this race. Having been well outpaced by the growth of New York City, Philadelphia had also been briefly surpassed in population during the 1840s by its southern neighbor, Baltimore. The political extension of city boundaries that would occur with the Great Philadelphia Consolidation of 1854 was in large part meant to remedy that particular problem. Now, in physical area, the largest municipality in the world, doubled in population and increasing in its industrial capacity due to access to Pennsylvania's coal and petroleum reserves, Philadelphia was booming once again, and its elites were keeping a jealous eye on the efforts of their counterparts in New York and Boston to build large civic artistic institutions like opera houses. Philadelphia had once been the great American city, after all, the seat of culture and government. Like an opera diva worried about younger rivals displacing it from a starring role, it did not want to be forced to leave the stage. As early as 1839, small groups of wealthy and influential Philadelphians had been meeting to discuss the problem. The Chestnut Street Theater, which was the long-standing favorite house of genteel Philadelphia society, was regarded as perhaps too small for truly great opera productions. The Arch Street Theatre, the Walnut Street Theatre, and its neighbor, the National Theatre, occasionally hosted operas, true, but for the most part, they were also considered unsuitable. This was due not only to their limited size, but there was also the indelicate matter of the managers of these houses being financially dependent on liquor sales in their saloons and upper galleries, which were both factors associated with attracting prostitutes. The Musical Fund Hall, a concert space on Locust Street to the south of the Walnut Street Theatre, was also occasionally utilized for opera, but its stage was not really built for it. The lack of an opera house in Philadelphia was coming to be seriously felt, people said. Ambitious plans were discussed to fund and construct a new hall in the district near Chestnut and Sixth, but the financial panic and bank failures of the early 1840s put a temporary halt to these plans. But by mid-century, urban elites in all American cities were once again seeking to build theater spaces where audience behavior could be completely regulated. The wealthy elite of New York City moved first. 
the Astor Place Opera House, built in 1847 at the corner of Broadway and Astor Place, was meant to be this grand civilizing space for Manhattan. But the 1800-seat theater failed financially when producing opera in the first year of its existence, and then when it subsequently became a legitimate theater, hosting tours of great Shakespearean actors, another disaster occurred. It was the site of the famous riots of May 1849, when the fans of Philadelphia's Edwin Forrest clashed with the supporters of English actor William Charles McCready. Now, in the run-up to that riot in New York, there had been demonstrations against McCready when he performed at the Arch Street Theater in Philadelphia, too. But, as I've said before, the Astor Place riots are mostly a New York story, and one that has been well documented in many other books, articles, and podcasts. But if you're interested in learning more, I've written about the Astor Place riots, as well as two other famous early 19th century theater disturbances in London and Paris, in the blog for our website, aithpodcast.com. Look for the post dated December 3rd, 2021, entitled The Riot Act. So, let's take the Astor Place riot as being read. Now that the Astor Place Theater was in a complete ruin... Manhattan's opera lovers decided to try again, and in 1852, the New York Academy of Music, with the specific mission of, quote, advancing musical taste to secure musical entertainments accessible to the public at moderate charge, close quotes, was founded by a small private group of stockholders. Now, that's generally how things were done back then. We are long before the era of non-profit corporations. And although the founders of the New York Academy of Music also looked to avoid, quote, the odor of exclusiveness. They could hardly avoid that unfortunate odor, since they were careful this time to locate their grand new opera house in a nicer part of town, farther away from working class areas. The 4,000 seat New York Academy of Music was opened in 1854 at the corner of Irving Place and 14th Street. Its frontage had a long series of elegant, tall, arched windows with classical columns placed between them. Inside were elaborate and costly decorations and sumptuous saloons and galleries. It was perfect for being a showplace for wealth and elegance, and grand balls were immediately held in it. Now, admittedly, as a theater space, it left something to be desired. It endured much immediate criticism about Poor sight lines, for instance. But let's take a moment to consider the name. The Academy of Music. Why not the New York Opera House? Well, okay, there were now two problems with the term Opera House in America. One was that it seemed too elite. The placards posted on lampposts by the pro-forest side before the Astor Place riots had sneered at the aristocratic opera house. Nominally, this new academy was supposed to be a civic venture where all classes were welcome. And then there was a second problem. Opera house was paradoxically also becoming too down market. There were minstrel theaters and vaudeville halls starting to call themselves opera houses and museums in an effort to claim some air of respectability. Now, 
opera house as a description would not do at all. So if opera seemed both standoffish and yet also down market, well, what about academy? After all, the very art form of opera had been invented by academies in Italy, Centuries before, groups of scholars and musicians who wanted to recreate ancient classical music of the Greeks and Romans and bring it back to the people of the world had called themselves academies. An academy had the air of intellectual seriousness and also civic pride. It was high-minded and civilizing, like the Académie Française. And who were the members of the New York Academy? Why? wealthy men of culture who invested in becoming shareholders of the organization, buying themselves lifetime passes to the premier artistic events of the social season. That's why the New York Academy of Music. So, thought the bigwigs of Philadelphia, a hundred miles to the south, we're going to have an academy too. One like New York has, but better. And they looked to Boston as well, where they were also building a great new home for opera, and there was already the established school called, you guessed it, the Boston Academy of Music. So, thought Philly, okay, let's have one of those too. Unfortunately, some enterprising folks in the Quaker City had already founded a small music school on Chestnut Street called the Philadelphia Academy of Music, so that was taken. What else could they call it? Well, over the years, many of Philadelphia's theaters, at various stages, had attempted to claim patriotic primacy by calling themselves the American Theater or the American Company. All right, so how about the American Academy of Music? Now that sounded right for the city where America was born. Oh, they would even do New York and Boston one better. The American Academy of Music would actually be a national institution. So an opera house and a music school were planned. The original charter provided for, quote, the establishment of a school of vocal and instrumental music, and for the organization of a competent corps of professors whose pupils would prove very useful among the members of orchestras and choruses. Eventually, this aspect of the project in Philadelphia would be abandoned as unfeasible, but the decision on what to call the building was made, the American Academy of Music, and that name can still be seen carved onto the centerpiece of the building's cornice today. The Appalachian Academy of Music, one that over the course of the 19th century would be applied to the major theater and concert halls of almost every large and mid-sized city in America, signaled social and intellectual propriety. designation academy was therefore an assertion of a superior social space and suggested that the theater was governed by a group of 
eminently respectable citizens who would oversee the status and quality of all performances. The original prospectus for the American Academy of Music specified that the management, quote, would give throughout the whole year a series of operas, English and Italian, promenade and other concerts, the pure drama, pantomime, and French vaudeville, close quotes. Families of all classes, it was stressed, would find it a pleasant resort of superior character. So, now that we have the name, what are we going to build? And where in Philadelphia would we put it? A structure that would comfortably hold up to 5,000 people, with magnificent ornamentation and open sight lines for every seat, was envisioned. Although, at sight of the corner of 8th and Chestnut Streets was briefly considered, it was decided that the confusion and personal exposure of the longtime Philadelphia Theatre District made the area too difficult for opera-goers to navigate. So, go west. With the consolidation of 1854, it became clear that not only would the location of desirable residences inevitably shift to the largely undeveloped western side of the city, but also that the eponymous width of the central north-south spine of Philadelphia's grid plan, known as Broad Street, was now an attractive feature for prestigious new cultural institutions. This was especially important for a facility that would require huge amounts of traffic at very particular hours of the evening, with anticipated crowds in the thousands arriving and leaving in carriages simultaneously. There were already some existing entertainment venues along Broad Street, such as the rebuilt open-air Vauxhall Gardens between Sansom and Walnut, signaling that the heretofore sparsely developed thoroughfare could be a most promising location for entertainment. In 1853, the popular and well-attended General Welch's Circus, with its star, the clown Dan Rice, had set up at the corner of Broad and Locust and had apparently accommodated the thronging crowds quite handily. William Parker Folk, who was a leading member of the group of Philadelphians organizing the plan for the Academy, wrote, The attendance at the Hippodrome, from all parts of the city and incorporated districts, shows how readily these citizens are collected from every quarter when the entertainment offered them is such as to please. Acting swiftly, the group purchased the lot that the circus had occupied. Although, of course, they griped about the expense that the previous owner charged them, it proved to be well worth the price. On September 22, 1854, the building committee announced an architectural competition for a theater on this lot measuring 238 by 150 feet. Specified in the requirements was that the house should seat at least 4,000 spectators in three tiers of boxes, along with a balcony and a parquet. It was meant to be both a concert hall and an opera house. As far as the exterior, it was to be, quote, a simple but imposing style built of brick with dressings of granite, brownstone, and cast iron. Strictest modern methods of ventilation and fire safety were also to be included, 
and they were in a hurry, said the committee. Proposals were due by December 1st, only two months away. This seemed like an incredibly quick turnaround to me for such a large project, but at least five architectural teams had their proposals submitted by the deadline. Among them was the young architect Edwin Forrest Durang, son of our old friend, the theater historian Charles Durang. The architectural historian Michael J. Lewis has recently published a monumental book entitled Philadelphia Builds, and he has an entire chapter about the design competition for the Academy of Music. I highly recommend it for his erudite examination of how exactly this played out. He devotes a lot of space to the questions of interior design and the politics behind it and how the different submissions show the influence of German or Italian classical architecture, but I will cut to the chase and tell you that eventually the commission unanimously chose and approved a design by the German architects Gustav Runge and Napoleon Lebrun, who submitted what Lewis terms, quote, an opulent Venetian design with a curving domed roof and a facade consisting of an arcaded entrance capped by a classical Corinthian colonnade. Statues at the summit celebrated the arts that would mingle within poetry, music, and dance. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Academy of Music will immediately note that this is nothing like the building that stands there today. What happened? It turned out that no sooner had the winners gotten their prize money than the head of the committee, the distinguished George S. Pepper, turned around and asked them to completely redo the exterior design into something much more simple. Runja and Lebrun immediately complied and produced instead the rhythmic parade of tall rounded windows with the detailed brick exterior that Philadelphians were to become so familiar with. Michael Lewis even gives us the proper name for this type of architecture, Rundbogenstil, or round art style, a very popular and respectable type of German design typical of North German theaters and public buildings. Why this change? The answer seems to be that A, the committee was worried about the cost of the original design, and B, the prevailing remnants of Quaker sensibility in Philadelphia always preferred simple, plain exteriors without too much ornament. But the main thing that the committee wanted was that interior space. This was where the civilizing and uplifting mission of the Academy of Music would have its greatest effect. No crowd has ever been calmed down or uplifted by an imposing exterior. The Astor Place Opera House proved that. In fact, such an imposing exterior rather tends to provoke people's resentment. But a grand and welcoming interior space with wide staircases, commodious lounges, and glittering chandeliers, one that welcomed people and that signaled to everyone that they should be on their best behavior, that was what the committee loved about Runga's and Lebrun's plan. Don't change a thing about that, they said. In fact, if today you look at the front lobbies and grand ballroom of the Academy of Music, you can clearly see the Venetian design with the classical columns that had originally been planned for the outside, too. But best of all was their plans for the auditorium itself. That's what won the day. It was an open horseshoe design with an emphasis on proper acoustics, ventilation, 
and fire prevention with great sight lines for every seat in the house and an orchestra pit that would accommodate 84 musicians. A subterranean sound pit underneath the house would add reverberance and warmth to its music, they thought. The architects proposed that the auditorium be lit by a huge central chandelier and that allegorical paintings adorned the dome ceiling with its plaster carefully embedded with horsehair to dampen echoes, and a method of raising the parquet floor to make the main space suitable for balls and assemblies. Oh, this was what the committee had wanted, Philadelphia's desire to hear and to see and to experience opera on a grand scale was at last to be satisfied. contract for the construction of the Academy was given to John Davis Jones, a Philadelphian of great reputation in the building trades, and the groundbreaking took place on June 18, 1855. The foundations were dug and the massive four-foot-thick brick walls began to rise above Broad and Locust. For such an elaborate and technically complicated structure, the Academy of Music was engineered, built, decorated and furnished with astonishing speed. The venerable Philadelphia myth that the walls stood open to the air for a year to acoustically season them is not only nonsensical, but demonstrably not true, as the roof was put on the building six months after the foundation was laid. By the end of the year 1856, the job was completed, and the managers and staff were being assembled to run the enormous building. Things were proceeding so swiftly on Broad and Locust, in fact, that it almost masked other events occurring elsewhere in the city. The old center of Philadelphia theater was changing. The enormous and popular venue, the National Theater on Chestnut and Ninth, had burned down in 1854, as we detailed in episode 12, and there was one other, much more consequential departure. It was assumed by everyone that once the Academy was completed, the grand old Chestnut Street Theatre near Independence Hall would therefore be hopelessly outmoded. The beloved old Drury was closed and raised in 1855. This demolition caused some dismay in long-time Philadelphia theatre-goers, but at least the theatre's brass gong that summoned audiences to their seats for decades was rescued and was preserved to be used again for its familiar purpose in the grand new space on Broad Street. The inaugural ball of the Academy of Music on January 26, 1857, was a glittering social success. Thousands lined Broad Street to watch the arrival of all the carriages and people in their finery. As everyone arrived at the new home for Philadelphia culture, they gawked and marveled at the decor as they had been meant to. The hallways and the stairs were blazing with gas torchieres and sconces as the light bounced off the pale floors and walls. In the auditorium itself, the dimensions of the interior was modeled after the opera house at La Scala in Milan. The ceiling surrounding the enormous central chandelier was decorated by murals executed by the German painter Karl Heinrich Scholze. As the ball-goers gazed upward, they could see his four elegant frescoes, three paintings depicting allegorical figures of the muses of poetry, music, and dance, and a fourth representing the dual figures of comedy and tragedy. 
The wide stage was filled with an artificial grove arranged around a grotto. Ladies displayed dresses and jewelry whose cost was clearly in the thousands of dollars. This was a future the founders of the city of Philadelphia had never dreamed of. A newspaper reporter from New York was duly impressed and remarked to his readers, in the great rolling, heaving, elegant crowd, I cannot discover a single Quaker in Quaker uniform, not a plain coat, nor a plain cap. Would William Penn recognize this European fashion and art institution as an offshoot of his original design? Vanity of vanities, the thousands revolve around and around, the dancers glide and pant, the musicians strike forth the sugary thunder, the mass, the whirl, the roar of the crowds, all are here. The only trouble of the inaugural ball evening was at the end of it. After a huge mix-up in the gentleman's cloakroom, many a Philadelphia gentleman went home with someone else's coat, hat, and overshoes. The classified ads of the newspapers were full for a week with offers to find the proper owners and exchange hats. But on the whole, the general feeling was that it had been the grandest night the city had ever seen. More was to come. On February 25th, finally, the long-awaited first grand opera at the Academy of Music, Giuseppe Verdi's new Il Trovatore, received its American premiere, starring the great diva, Madama Marietta Gazzaniga. Scenery painted with rich backdrops by Russell Smith decorated the stage, and the orchestra pit was filled with the best local musicians. Wealthy patrons and their families rented the luxury boxes, while a broad spectrum of other Philadelphians eagerly filled the parquet and the upper balconies. Even the curmudgeonly diarist, Sidney Fisher, the Samuel Pepys of Philadelphia of that era, pronounced himself satisfied and impressed with the hall. Quote, the woodwork is white and gold, the seats all covered with crimson velvet and the walls with crimson paper. It is thoroughly heated and brilliantly lighted. The central chandelier is very beautiful, light and airy, of cut glass with innumerable burners, it looks like a fairy fabric of gleaming crystal and diamonds. Close quotes. Oh, and he also allowed that the opera itself was produced successfully. The new season continued on subsequent nights. Other Italian operatic works, including Lucrezia Borgia, Norma, and La Traviata, soon followed. And then Don Giovanni, Marta, the daughter of the regiment, La Sonambula, and so on and so on. There were English-language operas and German operas, too, as would be true for the next 165 years. There was rarely a night when the Academy of Music was not Booked. Interestingly, though, after the first couple of years, the hall was used less and less as an opera house. Many other balls and receptions were held there, the Bachelor's Ball, the Floral Ball, the Academy Ball, 
and many other types of entertainment filled the stage. Ballets, concerts, children's pantomimes, acrobatic acts, scientific lectures, orators, political meetings, all could be counted on to fill the academy seats and keep the stairways bustling. And, let us not forget, the Chestnut Street Theatre had been torn down, so the Academy was also frequently booked to present plays. Attentive listeners of this podcast will remember that we've already talked about a lot of these. In 1861, when the Civil War was naturally dominating the city's attention, Edwin Forrest had played the Academy's stage. The famous son of Philadelphia had offered the public his works of muscular performance from his long-standing and familiar repertory, Hamlet, Damon and Pythias, Richelieu, Virginius, Metamora, Jack Cade, Othello, Macbeth, and Richard III. And Forrest returned in 1864 in a spectacular and highly impressive production of Shakespeare's Coriolanus. In 1863, Louise Elaine Drew had appeared in a benefit evening for the Union Military Hospital charity called the Sanitary Commission, playing Portia in the trial scene from Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. The great Charlotte Cushman, whom we will learn about in an upcoming episode, had also played the Academy as part of her efforts in many cities to support the Sanitary Commission. In August of 1863, Edwin Booth had made his Academy debut, presenting, among other plays, his version of Richard III. The Booth family already had a deep history in Philadelphia, going back to the days when his father, the erratically brilliant Junius Brutus Booth, had arrived from England in 1821. Edwin and his brother-in-law had in fact bought the Walnut Street Theatre, and he was then often performing there as well. It was in fact soon after this Philadelphia appearance that Booth would begin his record-setting run of his Hundred Nights of Hamlet at the Winter Garden Theatre in New York. And, as you may also recall, our old friend Fanny Kemble would use the Academy stage for her public readings of Shakespeare, performing single-handedly the entire text of such plays as King Lear and Hamlet, so, there was plenty of theatre and poetry on the Academy stage. But throughout the Civil War years, and for the decade after, concerts and operas continued to appear there with regularity. After the war, the demand for the Academy only increased. It was constantly used for charitable balls and assemblies and plays and operas and concerts. Adelaide Ristori appeared in the plays Medea and Mary Stuart. The great divas of their day, Gazzaniga, Patti, and Pareparosa, all sang there. The Reverend Henry Ward Beecher gave lectures. Pianists Anton Rubinstein and Louis Moreau Gottschalk played concert. The variety of performances, in fact, could be startling. Cairn Crost and Dixie's Minstrel's Troupe performed not long after the premiere of Offenbach's opera, The Grand Duchess of Gerolstein. Scientists demonstrated on the Academy's stage early versions of something called moving pictures to the amazement of all. In fact, the Academy was rather like a modern-day video streaming service. There were dozens of genres and acts and plays and operas, enough to suit anybody's tastes. And it wasn't just entertainment and education and art. In 1870, the second reunion of the Grand Army of the Republic was held there, attended by the former general, President Ulysses S. Grant. And in 1871, a reception and ball was held for the visiting Grand Duke Alexis of Russia. In 1872, the Academy hosted the Republican National Convention, during which President Grant was triumphantly nominated for his second term. Year after year, 
the shareholders of the Academy of Music pronounced themselves highly satisfied with their project. It had all turned out exactly as they had planned. Philadelphia now had a temple of high art and culture and science, and the whole country knew it. And all for ticket prices that usually ranged between merely a dollar and twenty-five cents. And the only incidents of audience misbehavior that I can find in the records are complaints that at the end of some operas, people threw too many bouquets onto the stage in slavish devotion to the singers they idolized. In the year 1876, the city of Philadelphia once again took center stage in the national celebration of the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. The Great Centennial Exposition and World's Fair spread across Philadelphia's Fairmount Park along the Schuylkill River. That's a whole podcast series in itself, though. I'm not sure I'm the guy to do it justice. For our purposes today, we can note that the Academy of Music did its share in the national celebration. On the night the exhibition opened, May 10th, 1876, Edwin Booth and his company performed Shakespeare's Henry V on the Academy stage. By now, William Shakespeare was regarded as fully American by most people in the country, and no one minded a play about the triumph of English armies defeating the forces of France, our allies in the Revolutionary War, after all. That summer, the Academy also hosted the seventh annual reunion of the Society of the Grand Army of the Republic, and on the stage could be seen Generals Sheridan, Sherman, Hancock, and many other heroes of the recent triumph over the Confederacy. It should also be mentioned at this point that the Academy of Music on Broad Street now had some new neighbors, as the center of gravity of Philadelphia culture kept shifting to be closer to it. The third Chestnut Street Theater had been built just a few blocks away in 1863, and Horticultural Hall, another concert and exhibition space, had been constructed next door to the Academy to the south. Across the street, the Kiralfi brothers, the Hungarian-born producers from New York, had erected a fantastical Moorish palace to hold their grand spectacular production of Around the World in 80 Days for the thousands of people arriving from around the world to see the Centennial Exposition. When the show was over, patrons could stroll in a garden with fountains, flowers, and statuaries adjoining to the north in a pleasure garden. And all the while, the now familiar round-arched windows of the Academy of Music glowed down onto passers-by on Broad Street. Operas, concerts, and plays continued to fill its stage that entire year, and well-behaved audiences flowed in and out of its doors nightly, their minds filled with memories of music and theater and dance that would last them their entire lives. And on that note, we'll leave things for today. I've been thrilled to finally talk about the Academy of Music, still Philadelphia's grandest and most intact 19th century theater space. I can't possibly fit the entire history of the place into one episode. There's so much more to talk about. Rest assured that we will come back to it again and again. I'm Peter Schmitz. Our podcast theme music, as well as all the other sound engineering and sound effects, are created by Christopher Mark Colucci. We'll put the credits for all the musicians and ensembles that you hear on today's episode in the show notes. 
as we sign off, Chris and I both want to say that it has been such an honor and a pleasure to bring this podcast to you throughout this past year. We hope that all of you enjoy a very safe and a happy holiday season and that you have a happy and prosperous new year. We leave you with the gift of this music, the overture to Richard Wagner's Tannhäuser, an opera first performed on the Academy of Music stage in 1897 under the conductor Walter Damrosch. But the recording you are hearing right now was a performance made in 1963 on the Academy of Music stage by the Philadelphia Orchestra under the baton of Leopold Stokowski. We'll have lots of new episodes coming up in 2022, and we urge you all to keep listening, keep sending us those supporting emails, keep posting reviews online about us, keep following us on Facebook and Twitter, and most of all, keep supporting your local theater companies. Whether in Philadelphia or anywhere else you might be listening, thank you, and we'll see you again real soon on another adventure in theater history, Philadelphia.